That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hey, this is Chris Mosier. My dilemma is I can't stop eating cereal for dinner. Okay, so of all the dilemmas in the world, this one ain't that serious. I mean, if you just look at your Instagram, it's clear that you have no problem staying in shape and looking fit. And so it doesn't seem like cereal is interfering with your athletic career uh, or your fitness. Now, maybe your wife wants to have a little more something substantial every once in a while, and you're already on bowl three of Count Chocula by the time she gets there. Uh, maybe consider settling in for a nice meal with her every once in a while. Uh, if you're worried about it because it's a little immature for a grown man to be dining like a college freshman, I don't know, says who? You can eat whatever you want. That's part of being an adult, right? That's the best part of being an adult. You don't have to answer to anybody. Uh, so if you're out of time or you just don't want to waste your time uh, cooking, if cereal makes you happy, then by all means, do your thing. Uh, just don't be that heathen who pours the milk first and then the cereal. I don't care what somebody on the internet said once about how it prevents you from eating too much cereal or over pouring the milk, whatever that terrible excuse is. It's always cereal first and then milk. Plus, the sugary milk at the end is sometimes the best part. The commission has spoken. My guest this week is my friend Chris Mosier. His resume is very impressive. He's the first transgender athlete to make a men's U.S. national team, first in the ESPN body issue, first sponsored by Nike and the Outsports Person of the Year in 2016. He's a Hall of Fame triathlete, All-American duathlete, and a five-time member of Team USA. He was the catalyst for change for the International Olympic Committee policy on transgender athletes. He's an independent consultant and speaker currently training for the national championships in the duathlon. While he's also training and coaching at the website, he founded transathlete.com, which is a resource for people to find information about trans inclusion in athletics at various levels of play. Now, a lot of people have questions about transgender athletes and the future of trans people in sports, and he's the best resource I could think of on this stuff. His story and his insight absolutely blew me away. Uh, from teaching adults karate as a 10-year-old girl on the front of a Chicago newspaper to navigating sports and school while not identifying with his gender, seeing how trans people were treated in the media, eventually making the transition and proving that a trans man can be an internationally competitive athlete. Um, we also get into some of the biggest misconceptions about trans athletes and their participation in sports. I think you'll find it interesting. I think you'll find it eye-opening and educational and important to listen and hear and understand and learn as we all continue to work to accept human beings as they are and as they see themselves. Here's my conversation with Chris Mosier. We've only met a few times in person, but we're also internet buddies. And I'm just so excited to have you on to not only talk about yourself and your own journey, but to help dispel some larger misconceptions about trans athletes and just educate people because conversations are so important to changing people's minds and just knowledge. Knowledge is key. Um, so I want to start out with when you were a kid, because you're from Chicago, this is your hood, and you started taking karate when you were eight and you started to teach when you were still a kid? How does that even happen? Ooh, you've done your research. Yeah. Well done, well done. <laughs> uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. Uh, I feel like we're best friends. Yeah, I don't totes. Know, so yeah. this is awesome. Yeah, I started taking karate when I was eight years old. I got my black belt when I was 11 years old and started teaching adults right away. It was a timing thing, so I was very dedicated to it at that time of my life. I had uh, great parents who took me, my mom specifically, took me three times a week to take multiple classes a day. And just that was my focus for three years. It's a little weird, right? Like how a kid becomes that involved in a sport like karate. I don't know. To me, it seems yeah. a, a little odd because no one else in my circle was doing that. It was just we happened to know these guys who were the brothers of my babysitter who wanted to start a karate studio. And that's really how I fell into it. Super random. And I think I wanted to be a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Yeah, so that was or the, the karate kid. It was right. The good timing, timing was for perfect. that. Um, why did you want to teach you know, I'm not sure. Uh, it was it was cool to be one of the only kids there. And so I think I was spending a lot of time with guys in their early 20s. And for me, it, it it's so weird to think like a nine-year-old girl felt so comfortable right. you know, with these guys. But uh, I very much felt like I had a whole squad of big brothers who were helping me become a better person. And it was just really fun yeah. to to learn how to teach adults 
and have them take me seriously. Like, I don't know if I, as an adult, as a, as a 25 year old would take a 14 year old, 13 year old, 12 year old teaching me anything, you know, that seriously. But yeah, I taught multiple classes a week and it was a lot of fun. It was, it was sort of the trade off for me continuing my training there. It was very cool. Well, and you were on the front page of a major Chicago newspaper with the headline, The New Karate Kid. And you were a girl <laughs> sex at birth, right? Your sex at birth was female? I was, yes, I was assigned female at birth, raised and socialized as yeah, a little Yeah, so I'm girl. trying to picture. And you are, you're not a, a tall, you know... Were you, you weren't, I can't even imagine you were like a husky kid. You were always wiry. Oh yeah, I was always tall and skinny. So yeah. I'm trying to yeah. picture you like just bossing around grown men. Yeah, I don't know. I think there was something about, um, this is, a, this is really awesome. This is a very interesting, you're, you're hitting on something that I don't really talk about or think about a whole yeah. lot, but I think that, uh, I learned so much from my participation in karate when I was a kid in terms of confidence and, and being humble. And those were two things that they say as part of the, sort of dojo precepts or like the the rules of being there are be humble and confident with others that's the number one thing Hmm. and i I very much took all of that uh you know very seriously i was reading books about bruce lee and his philosophies (laughs) at age 10 you know really trying to be a a little ninja before ninja warrior was possible um yeah it's uh I don't know how they how they took me seriously. Yeah. Well, but also the discipline, right? So it's it's very clear at a very young age before you're even participating in, you know, AAU or junior high or high school sports that you are very dedicated to something and when you have a passion you're going to do it repeatedly over and over until you're great at it. Um what was it like competing in girls sports? Did you do competitive team sports in high school? Yeah, I did. So, you know, karate was interesting because it was just fight against anybody. And uh, it was also forms, uh, the katas. So that is individual competition. And I did a lot of karate competitions as well uh, and the fighting against boys. And I felt very comfortable doing that. Um, When I was in junior high, I was playing basketball. I played softball and baseball from the time I was four years old. And so that was kind of my main sport growing up all the way through the end of high school. Uh, but basketball as well was a was a love and you know sort of just starting from pickup games in the neighborhood to being on my high school team in high school i was a three sport all conference athlete in volleyball basketball and softball okay so you pre- pretty much played everything yeah especially at that <laughs> school that everything. i was at i i had moved from illinois to wisconsin at that time and and it was really just what i felt like the only thing to do when you didn't have a car was just go to sports and so i i went one season into the next into the next into summer so what was it like navigating junior high and high school? Um, you presented as sort of androgynous, right? Mm-hmm. Um, did that result in bullying? Did you have a lot of friends? Was it more comfortable to be in sport because that felt like a space where it was okay? It, it definitely felt like sport was the place where I could be most accepted. Uh, and I, that was something I probably learned at a very, very young age, like probably four or five when I was starting to play organized, you know, competitions in my neighborhood with, you know, my uncle as the coach of the little right. T-ball team, um, that people loved and appreciated me because I was a good athlete and I was a great teammate. And so, you know, they wanted me on their team. I could hit well. I could shoot the ball well. Um, I was valuable in sports. And I think that made me, you know, gain friends and have a community. And that then translated into having some friends outside of sports as well, where I'm not sure what my life would have been like without without competition because I wasn't like my peers, um, particularly in the time that I could play co-ed sports. You know, when little kids are playing sports in the neighborhood, girls and boys play together. Totally. And it's not a big deal until about junior high. Right. And then they start to se- separate um, when that separation happened, I think, is when things sort of got tough for me. And that I knew I wasn't like the other little girls in my class, but I knew I wasn't like my brother and the boys around me either. And I just always sort of felt like me. Uh, it didn't bother me too much until people would say things about it. And I think around that time of being about nine or 10 years old is the time that people started to make comments about my gender presentation or about the things that I was interested in. Like, uh, you know, distinctly remember adults in my life saying, you can't skateboard, little girls don't skateboard. Mm. And being <laughs> like, well, I like to skateboard, and you're saying I'm a little girl, so I'm not understanding the discrepancy. Or, you know, things like wearing my hat backwards and things like that. Right. So how did it affect you in terms of your relationship with your family? Were they sort of working with you and trying to figure out what you were going through, or were they resistant to how you presented yourself? 
I don't think it was something that they had to figure out really i think that you know for little kids particularly little girls it's acceptable for little girls to be tomboys Mm -hmm. right um until high school about right until puberty and then we have different expectations of how little girls will present themselves and so i think for my family it wasn't really a struggle i was just always me you know it didn't change overnight from like sixth to seventh grade or something like that like i had just always been a hundred percent authentically myself. Right. And I think some of the struggle was probably in um, my family or my mom trying to protect me from some of the comments that would happen. And so like, you know, school shopping at the beginning of the year was a challenge because I wanted to go to the boys section and she wanted me to be picking out the girls clothes. And I didn't want to wear that. You know, I, I remember that sort of being a struggle. And that was, you know, from a very young age. Mm-hmm. Clothes get in the way a lot, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting when they were, when I was sitting in the audience at the ESPYs when they honored Caitlyn Jenner and they did a video and they went through her closet yeah. and they were showing her dresses and shoes and I rolled my eyes and I was like, this is how we're choosing. And then I was like, but how else do you? Like that's, that's the yeah. one thing we all associate in deciding gender is yep. the presentation of clothing and like beauty stuff, which seems so superficial because it is because it really doesn't matter that much. Right. But that's that's usually the sticking point. And as kids, especially how you choose to show yourself, especially mm-hmm. in what you're wearing, often is what causes people to bully you or question you. Um, but I mean, think about it. We even gender colors, right? When totally. When someone is pregnant, we say, you know, first thing we ask is, is it a girl or a boy? Mm-hmm. And then we buy clothing and items for that child based on what they say that they are. Yeah. Yeah. I never do that. That's good. I get all my little girls ESPN clothes and there you go. sports <laughs> stuff and make sure they rep my teams. Um, you know, I read an article and you talked about growing up and there wasn't a lot of conversation about trans people. Mostly what you saw were on sort of salacious shows, Maury Povich or Jerry Springer, or the joke would be a man wearing a dress would be funny. And it was not positive. There weren't any positive conversations about it. When you were growing up, did you understand what it was to be transgender or were you just, this is who I am. It doesn't really fit. And that's fine. Yeah, not at all. I didn't even have the word transgender in my vocabulary until probably had a, sense that the word existed in high school but i didn't know what it actually meant and like you said my association was with those trashy tv shows and the sort of jokes that didn't fit me that wasn't me although to be honest i didn't really think about my gender identity when i was in high school Hmm. and i didn't think about it when i was in college even i think college was a special time that i knew something was kind of bubbling up for me but i made myself so busy with my recreational activities my studies my work that I had no time to think about it. What did you think you wanted to grow up and do when you were in high school or college? What were you studying and thinking you wanted to pursue? In high school, I wanted to pursue athletics. And so I really wanted to play college basketball. When I got to college, I decided not to play college basketball. Had you been recruited and the plan was to play there? I was in the process of going through finding places and I backed out. And I backed out of the whole process to say, I don't want to do this. Uh, I need to study. I need to get a job to pay my way through. I want to do all the Save by the Bell extracurricular activities. <laughs> Why um, do you think you did that? I did it because I didn't want to be on a girls' team. Yeah. Uh, I, all those were excuses that I had that, oh, I just can't do it. Um, but I know looking back now is that that was really the time that my sort of, you know, the discrepancy started for me in terms of understanding my identity and seeing how people perceived me in the world and how they related to me and how I interacted with other people. And it wasn't that, you know, there's nothing wrong with girls and women's sports. And I want to be very clear about that. I love girls and women's sports. Uh, I am who I am because I played them as a child, but it's that I didn't identify as a woman. I didn't know what I identified as. I just didn't feel a strong association with any label. Right. But it's hard to exist in the world without a label. Absolutely. Yeah. So you get to school and you decide, I don't want to pursue sports anymore. What do you think you're going to do for a job or or what's then becomes the focus? Yeah, so I was a graphic communications major. So I was doing graphic design and artwork and also English. um, So I had a journalism background. And so when I graduated from school, I went and was the art director of a newspaper and sort of saw myself in, you know, in journalism in some capacity. 
it was a lot of fun for a little while, and then I decided that that deadline life wasn't for me. <laughs> I feel you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so I switched over actually thinking about how great of an experience I had in college in doing my recreational activities, community service. I was on the radio. I you know, was editor-in-chief of the newspaper, things like that, that I wanted to do that for other students. And so I went back to school for higher education. Cool. Let's go back to – it's Northern Michigan University, right? For undergrad, yep. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Let's go back. You were Wildcat Willie. Let's talk about this. Okay. You were so the mascot. I have my NCAA. I know way too many people who are mascots. Do you really? I do. You know Danny Pudi from the show Community and a couple other – he was the, back the mascot at Marquette. And, uh, really? Like, yeah. I have a couple friends that are non-celebs. It's a funny thing. You know, this was. It, I this also is, love mascots, so maybe I'm just drawn to them without even knowing. Be, you might be. Uh, we're special people. So, <laughs> I, this was one of the things. So, I would say getting my black belt in karate was one of the first times that I ever set a goal and worked relentlessly to achieve that goal. Another, if not the next time that this happened, was becoming Wildcat Willie. Mm. So, I, I was working in our um, C store, we called it the, the uh, convenience store. Wildcat Willie came in with some of the cheerleaders and they were doing a recruiting event and I looked and I was like I want to be the mascot (laughs) and people were like you are nuts and I was like no watch I figured out how to do the process I did auditions you know we had trainings five days a week in the mornings it was actually being a part of the cheerleading team so I actually have my division one NCAA letter and nice yeah so you know, if someone was trying to go deep therapist on you, they would say, you know, this is a great way to hide, right? To- oh, absolutely. And that was it. That was that part was of it. it. That was definitely part of it. I liked the secret identity part of it. Yeah. So my roommate, I don't think. And Willie was- is, sounds like a men's name. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Willie was a boy wildcat and also, um, you know, is in this gigantic hockey container, basically like big bag. And he's top secret. And so no one knows who Wildcat Willie is. And there are a couple of them, um, but it was totally secret. So I loved having that secret identity. And I actually, in reflection, really love the fact that that was probably the only time that I would authentically smile when people were taking photos. Hmm. I was inside a mask. Yeah, you can't, can't be seen. <laughs> I could not be seen. But, um, you know, I, I love bringing so much joy to other people and, and, Obviously, there are people who kick and pull tails and stuff like that, but right. the kids like just absolutely love interacting with the mascot and you know to to help rally the troops and get people you know fired up for games. I loved it, um, and I also loved being hidden and people not knowing that that was me. Well, and probably presuming that you were a man mm-hmm. inside of there, right? Which right. most people do when they see a mascot, regardless of whether that's idiotic, because clearly anyone yeah. could be in there. Yeah. Um, but also maybe if, if there was a level of being uncomfortable in your own skin, you're not really in it. People can't see it, but you still get to, you, I mean, it's a very interesting thing to interact with people and not have them see you. Yeah. And enjoy that more than when they can. Sure. And uh, that's social media for a lot of people, right? Oh, absolutely. And, um, yeah. But yeah, I, I love that, uh, I could still be a part of a group activity without feeling like someone would call me out. Yeah. There's a great ESPN profile of you a couple years ago before the the body issue came out. And in it, it talked about returning back to speak at NMU and being, you know, reminded of some of the memories of being there. You were mostly androgynous and some of that resulted in some painful harassment. Can you talk about some of that? And where was it coming from? You know, was it friends, actual friends or strangers on campus? I experienced some harassment there and... A lot of it now I think that I've buried and I am always very cautious about telling tales of the harassment and the and the negative things and I actually experienced a lot more harassment when I moved to New York and mm. was living in at a college in my job and that was closer to my transition time than college was but I want to make sure that I'm not perpetuating this idea that all trans people are victims of you know that that, that we can't live happy and successful lives and I think our harassment and discrimination is part of our experience, is part of most trans people have experienced something along those lines. But I feel like mine is is not really newsworthy. Yeah. In it's of- interesting because that, that 
makes complete sense. And then, of course, other people say they want to talk about it. So people who are going through it know they're not alone, that you can get on the other side of it. Yeah, sure. But, but I understand not wanting to always speak to that side of it because that's what's always going to be asked about versus the, the joy yeah. that, that comes with it. Well, I think that in, in college, just what I was facing was people not understanding my identity. And it was just a lot of idiotic, like, are you a guy or a girl? Yeah. Like people questioning. Yeah who I was. And I mean, what I've I gotten was. that many times in my life really? and I have a giant rack. <laughs> and not that that's the end all be all, but, sure, sure. but I don't it's, think I look like a man in any way other than just being very tall and having broad shoulders. But right. yeah, I get, yeah. or I get called sir a lot when people bump into me. Yeah. It's so, it's so bizarre, <laughs> but yeah, people make this snap judgment yeah. about whether or not someone is male or female. And if they can't put you in a box immediately, it frustrates it's them. very frustrating. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, almost um i think it makes people feel like they're in danger in some way and that was most of the harassment that i experienced in in school and also at the job in new york city was based on that uh part of it was also that i was living in new york city i was uh, working at a college and i lived where i worked so i lived with about 500 first year students mm. and every year i would get a year older and every year they would still be 18 <laughs> yeah and as i became closer to transition and more androgynous and more comfortable with people calling me he and then less comfortable with people calling me she. Uh, there was this sort of growing, I don't know, buzz across the student body. And yep. that resulted in a lot of harassment, people trying to break into my apartment, people leaving things on my door, you mm-hmm. know, and, and that was where I lived and where I worked. And that became a very, very stressful and toxic environment. I can imagine. Uh, there was a teacher at my high school who transitioned, and he spent a year um, taking hormones and other things and had to live for a year before surgery. And he originally looked a lot like Stephen King mm. and then transitioned into a woman and was a tenured faculty and was staying at school and stayed at school for years after that. And this was in the 90s, and this was, you know, there wasn't a lot of conversation about it. And I was, I, I looking back, I'm now really impressed and proud of the way the school and the community handled it. Although yeah. there were, of course, students that didn't understand what was going on. And, and I think back to my own reactions to it and I was never, uh, did anything about it, but I certainly would laugh at the jokes. And I think we mm-hmm. all sort of were raised to think that anything different or that we can't identify, maybe not so much the danger aspect that you said, but it's weird. Right. And as kids, especially anybody who's different or weird is bad yep. and should be made fun of. Not as much anymore because we're embracing weird and quirky in ways that we never had before when everything was so homogenous growing up. But um, I can imagine how that was for you. Did it in any way dissuade you from wanting to follow through with the transition to to be getting this response from people? Probably. I think at a certain point, I thought that that was the way that life was for everyone. Because I had been sort of the target of comments and jokes and, you know, this like low key harassment my entire life of people kind of whispering about me or saying comments or making fun of the way I presented myself, how, how I talked, how I expressed myself. I sort of just thought that was the way that life was. And when I started to hear first, when I started to understand what trans identity was and then started to hear the experiences of other trans people, I sort of figured out like, actually maybe everyone doesn't live like this maybe like not everyone faces this every day i think that i definitely hesitated in following through with making the decision to transition and for me what transition would look like based on my fear of what other people would say right it was the fear of what the students would say and people at my job would say the fear of what my family would say and friends and i think as i had a sense of my identity sort of earlier than that I cut a lot of friends out of my life so college friends you know it was easy when there wasn't Facebook or Skype to move across the country and to not you know to to check in via email once in a while but not stay closely in touch you know, as social media came up and then it makes me sound so old, right? Right. <laughs> no, I just, said, I just said nineties for high school earlier. So I outed myself. It was the late nineties. Yeah. Late nineties. Right. Same. Uh, you know, as, as sort of, we had better ways to keep in touch. These people kind of came back into my life and then I could slowly kind of tell them if I wanted to keep them around. And, and for me, that was kind of a blessing to be able to, to make a clean cut to say, totally. Like, I actually can't concern myself with what other people are going to think because I'm the one who has to live my life every day. And 
that's sort of what what sparked the decision is that it came to a point where I just couldn't tolerate going out in the world anymore and having people call me she and interacting with me in the way that they had been. One of the biggest misconceptions about transgender people is comparing it to sexuality or conflating it, not understanding that they're very two different things. And also that uh, sexuality is not binary. It's it's a it's a sliding scale. You can be very, very straight and have no interest in the same sex. You can be somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. You mostly dated men growing up. Yep. And then in college, your senior year, you met your now wife. Correct. Yep. That's another whole different bag of... Yeah. Bag of worms? <laughs> What's the pail of worms? What's the saying? Uh, can of worms. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> can of worms. To deal with, like, you're, you're dealing with identity and gender, and then were you surprised to be attracted to her, or were you only dating men because you thought that's what you were supposed to and not really going by feeling? No, I would say my sexual orientation is queer. I think that I am attracted to individuals, and, and to that point had only been attracted to men. And... Um, I think there was an interesting point of reflection for me of looking back on some of those relationships. And none of them were very strong relationships because I didn't want people to really get to know me. And so, you know, a lot of that was on me to say, like, I was trying to figure out, did I want to date them or did part of me want to be them? Ah. And so the people that I found myself attracted to, I think there were qualities that I saw within myself as the man I wanted to be also. Um, so it's kind of an interesting, really interesting, like, weird <laughs> look back at, at my relationships. But yeah, I met an incredible woman who is now my wife and I was totally surprised to f- fall you know, deeply in love with her. And I think I was very resistant to it as well. I did not have queer people in my life who had positive relationships. I didn't see, you know, that sort of relationship happening at my college campus. And I didn't know if people would accept me. I didn't know if my family would accept me. I didn't know what the future would look like for me. And so there were a lot of question marks in terms of that relationship. Did you come out to your family when you started dating her? Much, much later. I think we had been dating for a very long time and I had moved in uh, to her house in California before we ever had a conversation. I'm not even sure that I actually came out to my mom. I think that she wanted to visit me with my little brother and in California and we had one bed and I was like, she'll figure it out. (laughs) There you go. And you had not yet transitioned? No, so that okay. was um, that was eight years, I think, before transition. Okay, so I imagine you had to have conversations with your wife about that decision too. Yeah, I think she more had to have conversations with me, which was <laughs> totally awesome because she is she is an amazing like unicorn of a human being yeah. who had a lot more information and understanding, a lot more experiences of the queer community, um, and a better understanding of her sense of self in the world. And I think she, you know, she very much was the person who supported me in saying, you know, hey, I think you know something might be going on and you need to investigate a little bit more. And she encouraged me, gave me resources, and then was there to bounce ideas off of. I think the cool thing about that was that her identity is not at all tied up in my identity. Yeah. And so, you know, she loved me as the person that I am. And whether I was female, male, trans, it didn't matter to her. And that was very cool because she could just then you know, neutral, neutrally love support whoever. me and yeah. love me. Yeah. That's fantastic. So before you moved to L.A., well, no. So it was L.A., then back to Chicago, then New York. Yes. And throughout this time, you were still you know, pursuing regular work, but on the side, running marathons, trying triathlons, learning about the athletic side that you had maybe not been as focused on in college. What was the moment during those things, which a lot of people just do recreationally, where you were like, okay, I want to I want to do this? So my my last year of college, I had two mini strokes. And Jeez Louise. Yeah, I know. You know, part of the reason so you're dealing you know, with a lot you get all the at scoop once here because part of the reason this doesn't really show up in my story a lot is like each of our stories are so complex. Yeah. And there are so many different parts. So I feel like, you know, just understanding my gender identity And then coming out as queer before that, you know, like there's a lot to my story already. Hard to fit into a a podcast. Right. So this is the, you know, the super extras. Oh, good. Breaking news from (laughs) however many years ago. (laughs) Had a a serious health issue and couldn't run and couldn't do much physically at all. I moved to Chicago and I had started to run a little bit for health in California as I was trying to, you know, sort of figure out who I was in my freshman year of life. 
and what my future kind of looked like. And when I decided to come back to school, came to Chicago, and I saw a Chicago Marathon banner on the street. And I said, I want to do that. And that was one of those you know, goal-setting moments where I was like, here's a big, scary goal, and I can't run a mile right now. <laughs> and so you know, there's, there's something for me to shoot for. And my friends were like, you know, you're kind of nuts because you can't run a mile. That's a big, that's a far ways off. I think it took me five years to do it. That's awesome. But after moving to New York, I started to run races there. I did four mile, you know, 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons, worked my way up to the Chicago Marathon as my first race, and then uh, did an ultra marathon, which was a 60K race. And, you know, I think this was like something about being so sick and being so unable to do the things that I loved that I really wanted to see how far I can push my body. Mm-hmm. And there was something... The health that, concerns were gone at this point. It was something that had been, like, cured or it was no longer a concern to run? No, long, no longer a concern. I think I had helped to uh, nurse myself back with better health. Got uh, it. Yeah, okay. Through, through running and through uh, just better taking care of myself. Right. Um, yeah, so after that, I bought a bike. I taught myself how to swim. I signed up for my first race and decided to be a triathlete. And in that first race, I won my category. Jesus. But, so I decided I was a triathlete. <laughs> yeah. I was super embarrassed to tell people that I had won because it was in the women's category. Mm. And this is sort of where, you know, the, the roads meet. And I start to think seriously about what my future looks like as both an athlete and as uh, you know, person who has some gender attached to them. Right. Do you think that there's a chance that if you were not an athlete, you may never have transitioned and you would have been okay with being androgynous throughout life because the categorization wouldn't matter as much to you? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I think that my participation in sports certainly highlighted my category, right? Like because sport is so incredibly gendered, you're either with the men or the women, uh, in particularly the sports that I was playing, even in the co-ed sports that I was playing, the level at which I was playing was mostly men. And so it was a, it was an interesting mix, but that always had me questioning and thinking about my gender. I can't say I wouldn't have transitioned because my life was just becoming increasingly uncomfortable going to a restaurant, going to the grocery mm-hmm. store, being out on the street. So I think it would have happened, but maybe I would not have delayed so long because I really did wait uh, – when I figured it out, I probably waited a year to a year and a half before I actually made the decision to transition because I was concerned I was going to lose my ability completely to participate in sport. Right. So you had a friend who said that you should try to qualify for Team USA in the triathlon in the women's division because you were competing at that high of a level. Um, and you never followed through with that. By the time you actually decided to pursue that, you had transitioned. Did you start reaching for that goal still unsure if they would allow you or did you go through the steps to figure out your eligibility before like putting in the work? Yeah, I knew I would be pretty close to eligible. My uncertainty was the paperwork that needed to happen right. in terms of, of eligibility. And I wanted to attempt in 2014 and my paperwork on the night before the race, I still had not received the clearance on my paperwork in order to participate. Um, I actually got it on race day, but I didn't go to the race because I wasn't going to invest in travel and whatnot. So I had a whole year to really think about qualifying for that team and figuring out, you know, what, what that would actually mean for me. But yeah, I was very serious about when I set my mind to it, very serious about pursuing it. So you usually regularly place in the top 10% of your age group for, for men in, in triathlons, you, after not being able to compete in that race a year later, you had your eyes set on one race that would qualify you for the national team. Yep. How many serious races had you competed in and won or performed highly enough in to believe that that was a reality for you to, to reach for? I'm not a serial racer. And so I... You I just picked the big ones? I picked some big <laughs> ones, but you know, I really, I think I was probably only racing three to four times a year. And for triathletes and do athletes, that's a pretty light schedule. Yeah. And I initially did the same thing I did with running. I worked my way up from sprint, Olympic, half Ironman to a full Ironman. And then I decided to pick a distance and try to really go for, for qualification. I'm trying to think. I'm, I had placed a couple of times prior to that in the top three, uh, in races. And I may have won one of them overall at that point. 
But I think just statistically, like looking at where I was placing and looking at, you know, what I would need to do to qualify, I had full belief that I would be competitive. And you are now a five-time member, right, of Team USA. So that means you had to qualify five separate times? Qualify five separate times, yep. And I've done it in sprint duathlon, long course duathlon, and sprint triathlon. We'll be right back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. Go there, support the people who support this pod. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. That's what she said. So this is, again, maybe, you know, therapy session, but... (laughs) With transgender athletes, the pushback is almost always on transgender women. It's Mm -hmm. the idea that if you were assigned male at birth, you have benefits that are going to be unfair if you're competing against cisgender women. Mm -hmm. The reverse is rarely the case. No one seems to care. And when you transitioned and you started competing, everyone was like, ah, it's a girl. She won't do anything, right? Yeah. Are you as motivated to do this because you actually love kicking your ass every day and having zero percent body fat and being (laughs) restrictive of everything in life so that you can be the best at this or is this so much motivated by i mean something to this world to trans athletes to people's beliefs even to how people decide the rules because if i'm competing and competing well that'll change the way all trans male athletes are seen all of it, right? All of, all of that is true. Um, I distinctly remember in training for the first time I qualified for Team USA, being in the park and thinking about, uh, you know, on a lot of training runs, actually thinking about the reason why I was doing it. And, you know, two sessions a day at that time working out at five in the morning so I could go to work for nine hours and then train afterwards. Right. You know, I was thinking about doing this not just for me, but for my community and not just for trans men, but for all trans athletes and thinking about, you know, this could be something that changes everything for everyone. And it ended up being that, you know, in 2015, the IOC uh, changed their policy because I challenged them not being eligible for the world championship, which I'm sure we'll dig into Mm -hmm. in a minute. But I think a lot now about trying to continue because I love it and it's fun. If it's not fun, I'm I'm not going to do it. And that's, you know, I, I set new goals to keep it fun which is why I've been on three different teams, triathlon, long course, and short course. It has to be fun. It has to be interesting. But also, I get messages every day from kids and from their parents saying what it means for them to see someone like me competing and being happy and competing at a high level and being successful, being on Team USA, and and giving their kids possibilities. Totally. And I wish that I had that when I was a kid, and that is what will motivate me every single day. Yeah, your motto is actually one of my favorite quotes, which is uh, be who you needed when you were younger. And I imagine when you transitioned, there was a choice you needed or wanted to make, which was either I will seamlessly live as a man. I don't need to tell people I'm a transgender man Mm -hmm. and that will be more comfortable for me and everyone around me versus I'm going to openly discuss who I am and how I got here because it will help other people. Was that a tough choice for you at first? Were you more hidden about who you were? This is a super tough choice. I think I I sort of labored over that decision for a long time, and it was actually after I did my first race, uh, my first Ironman race as male, that I decided to publicly come out. But I had probably spent six months of therapy sessions talking about whether or not I wanted to do that, whether or not I was going to publicly come out, because once you come out one time, that's your identity forever. Mm-hmm. Um, you are always on the Internet as a trans man, mm-hmm. and there'd be no possibility for me just to go – 
to some town, get a new job, and live as the dude I thought I'd it's always like be. It's like porn star. I feel like <laughs> I feel like there are only a couple jobs where, like, if you do them, it will always be in front of your name for everything you do. Yeah, so let's not conflate being I'm trans. I'm not saying they're the same. <laughs> the thing that popped into my head was, and I don't know why, I think it's because Stormy Daniels has been back in the news, sure. but, like, that every time she does anything, it's always porn star, not woman, person, human being. Right, right. Just, it's always by not the job. Not even former porn star, No, right? but I, mean, yeah. I don't know if she's still, who, I'm not uh, up to right. date on the latest releases, <laughs> but, um. But no, there are certain things. Yeah. It's former yep. president is another one that's maybe yeah. a better association. Yeah, for, you but you're right. It then becomes the story every time, even if the story yeah. is completely not about your gender. Right. And so anytime I'm placing in a race, my trans identity is always part of that. And I think when I became comfortable with that idea of being a role model to other people and to be that person that I wish that I had when I was a kid, it freed me from having to have that secret identity Mm. from having to have something to hide and you know for some people it's a very authentic experience for them to be a trans person but not talk about their trans experience and to just live as the person that they know that they are for me i think it's important to highlight that piece of my identity because i didn't see trans men competing with men when i was younger and i want every person and every young athlete to know that you don't have to compromise your identity and who you are to play the sports that you love. You're very open about your body and how it has changed in the years since you transitioned. On your Instagram, there's a lot of content about that because I imagine you want to show people this is what it looks like, this is how it feels, Mm -hmm. and just make it more of a conversation, make it more open to people. Um, There's also a lot of thirst traps, which I have to call you out (laughs) on. Like You're not just telling people this is what my body looks like. You're like, oh, look, I now have 11 teen abs, and I used to only have 10. Um, That's important to you, too, right, Is, is physically showing people this is what a trans man looks like. And maybe taking away some of the mystery that causes people to create ideas of either danger or weird fear stuff. There is a special balance there, right? Of like, yes, the shirtless photos will always get more likes on Instagram, <laughs> so they are peppered in Deservedly there. Deservedly so. That's a lot of hard work. <laughs> um, but also, you know, I, I want to show people that this is my body that I'm very proud of because it's my vehicle for doing what I do in sport. And I work very hard on it. This is not a representation of what all trans bodies look like. And I also at the same time don't want to fall into that trap of sensationalizing trans bodies. Like my content is is not just about my body, but my body is my job mm-hmm. in, in some ways, right? And so it is about my body, but I think there is this sort of preoccupation with with trans bodies. Right. And so part of it is me being able to share openly about my top surgery scars and get, you know, answering tons of questions from young people who are thinking about doing that and people who are curious about my experience with it, but also not saying, like, the only reason I'm worth knowing is because right. of my body. Right. You know, in one of the interviews you did, there was sort of this, like, inner struggle between being a sort of shy person mm-hmm. and naturally not wanting to overshare with then understanding that being open about this and being an advocate means that you're going to get all sorts of questions, some of them very uncomfortable. Yeah. Is that get easier over years as you're more and more used to it? Yeah, it did. It has gotten a lot easier. And if there are questions now that I don't want to answer, I know how to dodge and to right. spin and to pivot and yeah. talk about what I want to talk about, particularly in interview situations. Um, I think I've been burned by enough reporters who wanted to use my story as something sensational mm. that I know what I want to say and how I want it to be presented and not in an inauthentic way, right? I don't want to come off so scripted that, uh, but I do have my talking points and I, and I have right. a very clear vision of what I want my legacy to be. I want to be, you know, of service to other people and I want my experience to make it easier for every person who comes after me. You do have a hot bod and you are a very attractive person. Thank you. So it's easier for you. And that's a conversation that comes up a lot in, in the trans world, right? Is yeah. um, how much easier it is for people to live if they naturally or through the benefit of money and surgery can make themselves fit in better. Yeah. How do you talk to maybe pre-transition especially um, people who who are worried that it's just not going to be nearly as easy for them. 
Yeah, I can't guarantee that it would be. And I think that I've been particularly blessed and privileged to say that I have had a very strong support system like my wife, right? And people around me, I had an exceptional boss when I was working at the job at which I transitioned who just, you know, assisted me. It was a great ally and helped make my experience easier so that I could just be my authentic self. After the body issue, right? So I got a lot of feedback. Uh, I got a fair amount of of negative feedback of just people who were transphobic. But some of the feedback that I got that was negative actually came from within the trans community and with parents of trans kids saying that I was portraying a um, an unachievable mm. body image. Um, I was actually know. thinking of that when I asked the question. Yeah, yeah, I didn't want to set it up like that, yeah. but that un- it would unfairly... Right. People would criticize you for being you, which is... Right, and yeah. for being fit and for, for looking like this. And, and you know, my... my come back, I guess, was just sort of that, you know, I am an athlete and this is what I do. And, and not everyone can expect to have a body like mine if they're not putting in the work, right? right? And there are people with what I would deem to be more fit bodies than mine, and they put in a lot of work as well. There's not just one way to be a trans person, and there's not just one way to have a trans body. And so I try to help people be realistic about, you know, like, yeah, everybody could eat better, work out a little more and, and, become a little more fit but what is what is that going to look like on your body right i don't know it might not be the same as it looks like on my body there are so many ways for everybody to have a different body specifically trans people which makes it really hard to regulate athletics Mm -hmm. in everyday life other than the annoyances of what it says on your id or what you put when you're flying on a plane or how other people treat and name you Mm -hmm. um there is less separation Mm -hmm. it's that's why the bathroom issue seems like such a big one to people who don't get that it's not a big thing um because it's one of the few places that every day people are separated into separate places in sports it's everywhere it's all the time so i was reading the old espn interview with you and there's like 11 paragraphs about well the ioc kicks it to these people and then they kick it to these people and then these people have a different set of rules but then they refer back to the ioc it's so complicated, and I really think there's still a lot of ways to go in LGBTQ and sports because we don't have enough out athletes, especially in men's professional sports. Um, we we would do a great service to everybody if more male professional athletes were willing and, and ready to come out and talk. But we're getting so far when it comes to that stuff. We've had so many great conversations. You actually were a big part of You Can Play for a number of years helping mm-hmm. run that. Um, which is a great organization. The trans athlete is still, I think, the next frontier of sport. The biggest question that people have about as we are more open and having conversations about trans people, where do they fit in? Is there any policy right now where you say this is the one that I think is the best way to do it and this is who implements it? You know, it really depends on the level of play. And so I think just to to quickly break down the different ways of being a trans athlete, right? So so some people will make a social transition, and that is changing your name, changing your pronouns, your hairstyles, you know, clothing expression, and that's it, right? So no medical interventions, no hormones. Some people do a medical treatment, and so a medical transition would be taking cross-hormone therapy. For me, I take testosterone. A trans woman may take testosterone suppression and estrogen treatment, and then maybe some sort of surgeries. There's not a checklist for trans athletes or trans people. There's no order of operations or order of, and I mean operations like check boxes. Okay. Not operations. Or literally. Yeah. <laughs> There's no order that things have to be done in. Right. People can pick and choose how they want to express themselves, what feels comfortable to them. There's also a legal transition would be changing your name, uh, changing documents, changing birth certificate, ID, passport, things like that. So you know, those are three separate ways of transitioning. And our policies are different depending on where an athlete falls. So someone who changes their pronouns might not have to change categories depending on the level of play. But someone who takes hormone therapy is probably going to have to change categories. And if you socially transitioned, it might be the hardest one to switch categories, right? Mm -hmm. Because... You haven't in any way affected your body. And hormonally is sometimes the way that people accept that you now belong right. athletically in right. one place or the other. Correct. And so a good example of this is uh, having a professional women's player change their pronouns to say, call me he, and still remaining in a women's league. Right. I think the 
what is, you said, what is good policy? So for the youth level, I think we need to be really clear that for young people, for kids who are just trying to move their bodies and participate in sports with their peers, there needs to be different policies right. than we expect for competitive levels for NCAA, which has you know scholarships and titles on the line. And then IOC, when we're talking about world championships and gold medals, those we can expect to be different policies. Um, The NCAA policy and the IOC policy match up right now. And, you know, this is interesting because as you as you said earlier about no one really caring if I transition to male because, eh, you know, he was assigned female at birth. He's not going to be competitive with men. Right. Any trans man can compete with men regardless of whether or not they're taking testosterone. So a trans man just needs yeah. to declare their identity. So because, socially. Yep, socially can transition yeah. and compete on the men's team. If because they make of the it. belief that because of they the aren't being helped by that, yeah, hormone. That someone assigned female at birth could not possibly be competitive with someone assigned male at birth. You know, and just to dispel that, we know that there is a wide range of ability, of size, of muscle mass, of speed, of strength, all of that right. um, between sexes, and that there's a crossover between people assigned male at birth and assigned female at birth. And, you know, it just goes back to the very sexist assumption that someone assigned female at birth will not be competitive. Right. Um, For people assigned male at birth, transgender women and trans girls, you know, as you mentioned earlier, they face the greatest amount of discrimination and particularly people of color. That intersection of identity is important to note because not only do trans women face the greatest discrimination in the world, talking about like, harassment and murders but also in sport anytime a trans girl or trans woman wants to play they are automatically assumed that they would have some sort of advantage or be better than their cisgender peers you came to the espnw summit and answered a whole handful of great questions and tackled a bunch of issues Um, and one of them was about at certain ages requiring or necessitating surgery in order to compete and i know at one point there was something called the Stockholm Consensus mm-hmm. that required a gonadectomy and reconstructive genital surgery, genital surgery two years before competing. Is that still in place for certain places? Okay, so that is complicated. So that rule was an IOC policy that a lot of national governing bodies adopted. And so because it was governing the Olympics, places like the U.S. gymnastics team, USA Boxing also adopted those policies. When I challenged the policy in 2015, Part of what got changed was they removed that idea of of surgery needing to be necessary. For the IOC, it's no longer necessary. But USA Gymnastics and USA Boxing have not updated their policies, Hmm. even though this was announced at the beginning of 2016. So here we are three years later not having those policies in place for certain USA governing bodies. Hmm. What are the most common questions that you get? I think right now the most common question is about competitive advantage and about uh, how hormones impact the body. And it's really interesting because we don't have enough studies out there right now to solve all of the Internet's uh, bickering back and forth on Twitter. There have been some recent high-profile athletes who have come out with their position, uh, female athletes. Yeah, Martina Navratilova recently. Yes. Notably. Yeah, and and very painfully so because as an icon of the queer community – you know, there are a lot of lesbian, gay, and bisexual people who look to her as a source of knowledge and, and advocacy. And, you know, to have that sort of in-group discrimination is really hurtful, particularly for trans youth, because in South Dakota, when they were trying to pass anti-trans legislation, they actually quoted Martina's article mm. on the floor to try to get this passed. And so uh, I think that's really upsetting. But, yeah, talking about policies in terms of hormones – the IOC last week, I think, announced that they are going to be funding some grants to do more research surrounding trans athletes to help us figure out. Um, but right now, I think that you know what we have in place has been proven from doctors and medical experts to be the best policy that we can make right now, and you know that we have to believe that that's what it is. Right. Um, not just athletes, but trans people. What do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions that you hear? I think one of the big things is that, um, you know, aside from the, the sport competitiveness, um, is that that there's a singular way to do it right. Right. Um, I think that particularly in sport, because it's so binary, we have male to female athletes or female to male athletes. But we leave out this whole middle section of 
non-binary folks, of people who are transitioning and not trying, you know, quote unquote, trying to be uh, within the small box of being female or of male. And so, you know, understanding that uh, we live in a very gender expansive world. And just as there's not just one way to be a man or one way to be a woman, there's not just one way to be a trans person, which I think makes it complicated for people to understand. It's so simple if you just decide it is mm-hmm. that everyone just be who they are and love who they love and dress how they want and tell you how they want to be referred to. Yeah. Um, that it's sort of fascinating how angry it makes people. Yeah. Um, but again, it comes back to confusion or history or antiquated ideas of what matters. Mm-hmm. And also, it's very much about living in a patriarchy. Absolutely. It is very much about sexism. If we can't identify whether you're the half of our country that we think is less deserving, less strong, less intelligent, all of these things that we associate with being female, then that will be difficult for us to decide whether you get the benefits and that sounds absurd, but it's it's so true. Yeah. No, thank you for saying that and let me support you on that yeah. because, you know, you had mentioned earlier about wanting uh, a male athlete to come out, you know, and having those conversations be accelerated. But when we're talking about female athletes, we're fighting the reverse assumption that every woman mm-hmm. is queer and, you know, that creates a whole different set of problems and also not acknowledging you know, the LGBTQ identities within women's professional sports in the same way. I think there was a headline that said Brittany Griner comes out and the world shrugs, right? Right. Like, I don't know that that's necessarily always a bad thing. I think that's because there are many. We have amazing, popular, successful, fantastic uh, LGBTQ women that are playing their sports. And the assumptions about that aren't there as much as they are on the men's side. And so right. I just wish there was more parity because of what good it could do. Right. I, and I agree. And I think that uh, we there, society preferences a certain type of masculinity, mm-hmm. not only in sport, but also in the world. And so you're very right in saying, like, you know, I think the reason people struggled with me when they couldn't assign me as male or female was that they didn't know, you know, do I respect this person <laughs> or not? Right. And that's so troubling to uh. say. You were absolutely right that when I made Team USA, I kind of got a shrug, a slap on the butt, and a good job, buddy. And that was it. And because people didn't, still didn't think that I would be competitive or that I would be able to do it again or whatever it was, you know, I, I sort of feel like I've been able to sort of fly under the radar in a lot of ways, which has been a privilege. And it's my sort of inheritance of male privilege and being perceived as a straight white man. And there's a very real privilege there associated with that because when I'm talking about policies, I know that I'm treated differently than if a trans woman is talking about Mm -hmm. policies. And so, you know, I feel very passionately about using my platform not to speak on behalf of the entire trans community, but to lend one perspective and know that a few more ears might be listening. We're running out of time, but you just reminded me of something. I had Christina Carl on the podcast and I said how funny it is to go from being a cisgender white male in baseball Mm -hmm. who everyone is like well you love baseball and you know baseball because men were born with a gene that (laughs) knows sports and then to transition and then be like oh well you're a woman now so you don't know sports anymore even though you're you know baseball writers of america and what is it like to be able to say you know both what it is to be a woman in this world and to be treated to be treated, not to be one, but to be treated as a woman in this mm-hmm. world and then also treated as a straight white male. It's such an interesting perspective. And I love Christina. Uh, yeah, amazing. She's fantastic. Um, it's such an interesting perspective. And I think that I've had, you know, I, I know that both sets of people don't always wash their hands in the bathrooms. And I know what the <laughs> locker rooms are like. And I know just how nasty people are. And, everyone you know, talks about sex. Everyone. everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting perspective that it has, has informed who I am today. It's not a perspective that a lot of people get. And I'm grateful for that experience of being raised and socialized as female, even though I think my life would be drastically and amazingly different had I known my identity in high school, had I transitioned earlier, all of those experiences made me who I am today. And I think it's given me a really rich perspective to be able to have conversations, not perfectly, but to try to have conversations to make the world a better place for everyone. Absolutely. Well, before you go, you have to do the one thing that everyone does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right, the Spanish Inquisition. 
questions everybody answers and nobody expects. Number one, your Desert Island album, you can only have one. Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Excellent. Number two, habit or quality that's most contributed to your success? Relentlessness. I would gather that by your workouts for sure. <laughs> Honestly, what's your your Instagram is just at Chris Mosier. At the Chris Mosier. At the, if you want to make yourself feel terrible about yourself because you can't remotely imagine doing all that work, you should follow Chris. Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Answering this question. It's really hard for everyone because I have very successful people and I think part of people's success is the ability to not get caught up on things. For sure. You just push past them and then later on you're like, well, technically, I guess that was a big failure, but I never viewed it as such, so I'll just move on. I'm not trying to be bad about this. I I fail every day. At? At keeping my promises sometimes of of my workouts, of eating well going to bed on time so you're just one big failure i'm, I'm a ball of failure <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll let you off on that because it's a tough one uh number four have you ever been in a fist fight yes are you usually the giver or the taker are you getting the beat down or are you throwing throwing some serious i makers? never started i always finish it be yes humble, be humble and confident with others yes i love that you use karate moves in a fist fight if i need to yes absolutely like a, like a nice trained swinging kick would probably come in handy i am not as flexible as i used to be <laughs> uh number five if you could switch lives with anyone for a day who would it be Ooh. uh serena mm, serena that would be pretty badass yes that would be nice uh number six what's the most embarrassed you've ever been um it, it would be a trans related story and i was walking uh like deeply deeply embarrassed walking from where i lived to my work with a coworker, and a school bus was stopping on new york city street and two of the kids rolled down the window and threw water bottles and hit me with the water bottles Aww. and yelled are you a guy or a girl and mm -hmm. i was a grown person at this time but i was also with a coworker and a student and so i walked in front of the bus and i stood there and i demanded that the bus driver tell me the school and I was just like shaking with rage and embarrassment. And, you know, my coworker came over and helped me try to get the bus driver to say they wouldn't say. Mm. We stood in front of the bus for 45 minutes trying for the police to come. Whoa. I was then late for work and all sorts of stuff. But walking away from that situation with the kids getting away with nothing happening and my coworker and the student seeing me along with all the other people on the street right. was probably a moment of the deepest embarrassment. I've ever felt and then having yeah. to explain that to people at the school. Well, anger like, plus embarrassment makes it and so much worse. Embarrassment and shame. Yeah. 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 Great question. This is awesome. Yeah, this is so fun. <laughs> what a way to end. Um, <laughs> let's keep it going. Number seven. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, I would most like to improve my eating. I don't eat enough. I was going to say, you know, it can't I'm be. vegan. Okay. And I have been struggling just trying to. It's a great new place up. in Wicker Park. No bones. Have you been? Ah, oh, so good. It's so delicious. fun. Too. Yeah, they yeah. got good tiki drinks. Yes, which you're probably not allowed to have because then you'd have a not a five percent body fat. Not a big drinker. And you're at four. Uh, number eight. If you could play commish for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? No straws. No, no, okay. no single-use plastics. We're getting close to that. Yeah. Closer. Yeah. I got to buy one of those metal ones that you put in your bag. I got you. Because the, the, the paper ones. In fact, No Bones is the last place where I wanted to murder a paper straw. Because <laughs> it was a delicious tiki drink, but it was full of ice and things. Mm -hmm. And by the end, I couldn't get any of it out. And then I dumped a bunch of ice on my face trying to drink it without a straw. Straight or with the bend? Uh, I'll do either one. Okay, I got you. All right, I'm on it. I actually am going to buy some and just start handing them out because I feel like it's a good service to the world and everybody should have just a metal straw. I go to uh, Edge Athlete Lounge Recovery Place in Chicago and I actually bought them just loads. A giant thing? Because they have smoothies you. there. I yeah. love that. Uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? When I was a kid, uh, watching my parents fight one night. Yeah? Yeah. Number 10, what's three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Not like a phrase, but like three separate words. Compassionate. Relentless. Authentic. Ooh, that's good. I like those. Bonus question. Who would you recommend I have on this podcast? Who should I talk to? Ibtaj Muhammad. Oh, yeah. I would love to have her. 
I'm glad you said that because I got to add her to my yeah. list. Yeah. She's such a badass. Such a good speaker. She really is. And Ta- she has a great, interesting story. And Tatiana McFadden. Oh, yeah. Great She great spoke story. at that same uh, yeah. ESPNW summit that That's you spoke at. first fell in love. Yeah, she's amazing yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> um, thanks for coming on. Thank you so I much I could have talked to you me. for like five hours. This There's incredible. so many Thank things you. that I didn't get to ask, but. Thank you. Let's do part two. Yes. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. Today, we got to talk about people who don't understand how to use the word humbled. And trust me, they are everywhere. Just check any Instagram or Twitter post in which someone is sharing an award they won or a promotion they got or a record they broke. It's always, always, always hashtag blessed, hashtag humbled. I do not think this word means what they think it does. Okay, let's start with the word humble. We didn't used to see humble in circulation all that much. We heard about someone coming from humble beginnings or maybe in a fairy tale. Someone would be described as a humble farmer or a humble shoemaker. It simply meant you didn't have much in the way of possessions or money. It was often used in sort of rags to riches stories, you know, from humble beginnings to great success. And you rarely said it about yourself, right? It was the way someone else might describe you or the way a character might be described in a book. And it's not always about worth and wealth. Someone could be humble in the way they talk about themselves and their accomplishments. My recent guest on this podcast, for instance, Tim Kirkshin, very humble guy, self-deprecating, modest. One can absolutely even be humbled by a circumstance, a massive failure, a firing, a great embarrassment, for instance. It's humbling to fail. It's humbling to be told you're not good enough. It can even be humbling to be in the presence of greatness and realize your own relative lack of accomplishments. You could brag about making $100,000 in a year, learn everyone else in the room makes 500000 and be humbled by your misplaced braggadocia. You can even be humbled by the stars, the greatness of the cosmos, and how tiny and insignificant you are. All of those things are correct. Humble beginnings humble attitude, being humbled by greatness around you and realizing your own relative insignificance. Those are great. But these days, jackasses everywhere are saying they're humbled by things that actually make them look good. It's literally the opposite of what the word means. You can't be humbled by how great you are. You can't be humbled by your own wild successes. One day if I snap, I swear to God, it's going to be about this. It's like we took the idea of humble bragging We lost all of its winky self-awareness and just decided if we're going to write self-congratulatory posts, we need to write humbled in order to excuse our blatant self-promotion. The word you're looking for, people, is honored. And there's no shame in the game of telling people you're excited about an accomplishment. For instance, the E60 piece I did alongside my great producer, John Minton, and great editor, Mike Scalis, on KC Chiefs coach, Dylan McCullough, just got nominated for a sports Emmy. And I'll tell you what, I am not humbled. I'm psyched. I'm honored. I worked hard. I got lucky because I got to tell a great story and people liked it. And now we're nominated for a sports Emmy. And I want to share that with people. And I did, but I'll own it. I don't need to misuse a word to excuse it. I am honored, not humbled. All right. I feel good about what we accomplished today. Hashtag honored, not hashtag humbled. There, I fixed it. Tissot is the official watch of the NBA. Each one of Tissot's timepieces delivers quality performance and traditional luxury. This graduation season, get the NBA fan in your life a Tissot watch. The Tissot Chrono XL is a great watch for those looking for a sporty chronograph with Swiss technology at an unbeatable price. Shop now at us.tissotshop.com. That's what she said. No time for a listener dilemma this week, but keep them coming. Tweet your problem to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe, rate and review and leave the dilemma in your review and maybe I'll fix it. And thanks to all of you that have been subscribing and leaving reviews and telling me how much you've been enjoying the podcast. It really means a lot to me. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 